This is Dr. Sean Horn, and you're listening to Inspired Living Podcast. I received a question in response to my toxic shame post that I put up on Instagram today. Let me review that post with you real quick. It says, toxic shame is social trauma syndrome. I would also call it relational trauma syndrome. And by the way, I created that term. So it's not an official diagnosis, but it really does describe that toxic shame does create such a problem in our identity and such a problem in our life that it is it is really a syndrome. So let's uh, look at what I said. So shame occurs in the context of relationship, in the context of a social environment. It's the message that we receive either directly or indirectly that our needs, feelings, attributes, appearance, interests, desires, identity, body, behaviors, your style was unacceptable and dangerous of being rejected and of you being exiled. It was dangerous because it resulted in them in us being bullied or emotionally, physically, or sexually harmed. We were unloved or unwanted, rejected, isolated, not included, and denied opportunities. What happens is when we express this desire, something bad happened to us. We were rejected. We were harmed. We were put away, so to speak, or people would withdraw their love from us. And we got the message. This is not okay. I cannot have this feeling, this need, this body, this look, whatever it is. I need to get rid of it. So we receive the message that no one will like me. No one will want me. No one will love me. And you're not good enough. Unfortunately, it oppresses us as it protects us. What I'm saying here is that shame will activate our survival brain to protect us from that reality ever happening again. So it will inhibit our dream by saying, you can't do that. What are you thinking? Inhibits our potential, the expression of our natural born gifts. It prevents us from stepping out of the box and living wholeheartedly. It prevents us from being able to authentically love and receive love, especially if we're always hiding, right? We are at risk of perpetuating the shame cycle and passing it on to others. So it is imperative that we clean up any toxic shame messages that we hold in order for us to live wholeheartedly, live fully and free. So we must unlearn who we were told we are to learn who we really are. Probably have heard me say this before. So shame says that to do that, that's scary. But I'm here to say that that shame's a lie. This idea that it's dangerous to unlearn who you are, that it's scary to unlearn who you are. It's actually going to free you. It's going to help you to step into your dreams, into who you were designed to be. And just, it's all going to be good. It really is. But it's hard to walk through that journey. I recognize that. So truth says that it's necessary and dreams say that it's essential that we do this journey. This post that I put up, someone sent me a question and I'm going to read this question to you and then I'm going to respond. And I think that even though this is a specific situation, there's several things we can highlight that we'll be able to identify with or know someone that it will help to know this information. So if you know someone that it would help, please share this with them. 
But keep in mind that I don't know that specific situation. So whatever comment I'm making is not specific to them. Whenever you hear these medical providers and stuff on these talk shows that are given these questions and they're responding to it with authority and confidence, I always cringe because I think, oh my gosh, no, you're telling this person that yes, that person's bad and you should not be with it. But maybe this is not the full picture and we just need more information to really help that person navigate through that situation. So this is not a medical directive to any of you. This is not treatment recommendation. This is my clinical and professional knowledge that I have that this question is bringing up this information to my mind that I want to share with you. If you are in the situation and you're struggling, please seek a medical provider that you can sit with who can know you, know your story, and be able to apply it to you personally. So here's the question. I was wondering if I could ask you a question about your toxic shame post. My newly ex-fiance is, I'm almost 100% sure, a narcissistic sociopath who experiences so much shame that he self-sabotages. I hurt so much and he hates himself with such passion. I don't know what to do because I'm trying to do the right thing. And I'm not sure what that is anymore. I feel like the right thing keeps changing. Stay with him to help him leave him because it's emotionally abusive. He's not changing, but it is trying, I think. And then stay with him because he needs help. And his childhood was horrifying. He just needs help. He's saying losing me was the wake up call. But how long do I wait and do pathological liars really change? We talk a lot about stuff and always have, which is why I can't tell if he's being honest with me or trying to trick me with the things he's saying now. How much can someone change if they go to therapy and get rid of toxic shame? And I know I sound like every other hopeful girl out there, honestly, but I truly see good in him. He's literally been rejected, abused, and in so much mental pain his whole life. No one starts out needing to lie about everything, right? Oh my goodness, folks. There are so many things I need to say about this. Okay, first I'm going to say, that one of the things that I teach in my work is the principle of dialectics. And dialectics is the idea that opposites can occur together. We can be strong and weak at the same time. We can be loving and unloving at the same time. We can be wounded and abusive at the same time. What gets in our way a lot of times is black and white thinking that this person is good, they had this horrible childhood, then what does that mean about this other side? So then the hard part of this person is lessened because of their past. So a lot of times people seek diagnosis and understanding. They want to know why this person does what they do, as if knowing why will equate change. Or as if knowing why will resolve the tension they have in that relationship. I see that a lot with affairs that they think if I know why this person had an affair, I will feel relieved and of what happened. And it just doesn't work that way. This idea that somebody has had a lot of mental pain their whole life, somehow that justifies or changes the current situation. And it does not. What we are all accountable for is our behavior today. We are accountable for not what we say, not what we promise, not anything like that. We are accountable for how we behave, the choices we make. Yes, we do want to consider context. We do want to 
consider all of the pieces that go into the situation. But when you're in a relationship with somebody that is making excuses for their behavior, they're justifying that. They're saying, I'm only doing this to you because I had this painful thing in my past. I had trauma in my past, and that's why I rage at you. I had been abused as a child. That's why I abuse you. Okay, good to know that that is a contributing factor. We need intervention with that. But that does not justify that behavior, period. It explains the neurological contributions to it. It explains the state of being that that person's in. That information is relevant for treatment. If we have neurological issues, if we have chemical issues, we have to treat that. But you must stay safe. You can love somebody and not be with them. It goes back to playground rules. If they don't play nice in the playground, they can't play on the playground. If you have somebody in your life that is dangerous to your physical health, your emotional health, your sexual health, then you need to take proper steps to be a good steward of your life. That is your responsibility as an adult. Your responsibility is to be a good self-leader, to be the best inner parent you can be, to love who you are all parts of you, all parts of your journey, and to take care of your inner child inside. And if someone is being scary and someone is harming you, they're harming that inner child. And you need to get that parent in you activated to step in and say, I care about you. I love you. I want what's best for you, but you may not harm me. And unfortunately, because this is unsafe, I need to take proper steps to keep myself safe. And that means perhaps we end this relationship. I refer to the YWCA for intervention with that. If you're in a domestic violence situation to really figure out what to do in your specific situation so you can do it in the way that causes the least harm and is most safe for you. Going back to this, one of the things that stood out to me was when the person said, I'm trying to do the right thing, but I'm not sure anymore. One of the outcomes of being emotionally abused is they spin your thoughts. You start to not trust your own thinking and you've been taught that you're not thinking straight because of some other thing that is in you that is making you react this way. I've heard people say, because you were abused as a child, you're extra sensitive or because somebody did cheated on you in your past, that's why you're you're reacting this way. And they'll do this to gaslight the person. And gaslighting is when they distract you with something that you connect with or you relate to as an excuse to escape responsibility for what they're doing. So let's say they hurt you and you're crying and then they say, you're on your period and this happened and that. And so then you you go, well, I am kind of on my period. And okay, well, maybe I am overreacting. I don't know. And they start spinning your thoughts. So I can always tell when someone has been emotionally abused because they cannot think a straight line. They're just scrambled in their mind and they can't articulate their thoughts. They can't articulate what they feel, what they need, what happened. And especially if you're feeling threatened, your brain just shuts down. It just goes into fight and flight and freeze and it's there to protect you. There's so much in this. I think what I'm gonna do is just start from the top and go down for each point. This person identifies this other individual as a narcissistic sociopath. If somebody is truly a sociopath, if they're truly antisocial, which means that they break rules, they lie, they will do things at the cost of others, and they don't have proper empathy, they don't have healthy shame, they are cunning. 
and criminally minded. Those folks are that way. And when I used to work in the women's prison, I was very hopeful and I thought, oh, these women just need the right treatment. They write, they need the right intervention. And the first month I was there, I was so motivated. The second month, I was like a deer in the headlights. And the third month, I thought, how much longer do I stay here? I could not believe how deceptive these women were and how they were deceptive for no reason, it seemed. It, it didn't make sense. There was no rhyme or reason. There was no cause and effect. It was just for the game of being cunning or getting away with stuff. And what I learned is that you just can never trust what they say. You just can't. In my mind, once I know someone has lied in that way and they are sociopaths or they are con artists, I don't trust a word they say. I just don't. What you can trust is that they will lie. What you can't trust is that there's going to be a new a new code of conduct there for them. And most of the treatment is really more behaviorally focused. It's more just stay within the lines, behave by the rules, and do what you need to do. And so you're safe and the world is safe from you. But they have those there because they know they're going to be dangerous. And these individuals themselves have told me they will never change. They just say, I need to be locked up for life because I will never change. They know it. And since I've been on Instagram, I have had some accounts that are of people that claim to be sociopaths, psychopaths, and they have messaged me. (laughs) It's been pretty intriguing, quite frankly. I've had a lot of questions. I haven't wanted to engage it because it's not safe, but they have said, I do things. I victimize people. I'm a con artist and I will continue to do that. I enjoy it. And that's just the way it is. And it's scary. It's chilling to hear him talk like that. But it is so true. And they're hidden mind behind the scenes. They just don't have the reactions we need them to have. And they've done even brain studies with this. And they don't have the reaction in their emotion centers to images of sadness or abuse that we would want somebody to have. So we do have neurological diversity with individuals with that diagnosis, and we are to tread cautiously. There's a reason why they're labeled that, they are unsafe, and we must recognize that. But if they're highly intelligent, they can be amazing con artists and convince you that they are safe, convince you that they are honest. So that's where you have to go back to letting the behavior talk for itself. Not the words, not the promises, not the dreams, the behavior itself. What are they actually doing? And you want to look for the for a consistent pattern, not just a three-month thing, a one-year thing. I've had some individuals come in to work with me whose spouses left them because they were abusive. And they came in, they were the ideal client. They came in, they said, I am so convicted. I'm so aware of what I've done to this person. I am torn apart. I never want to hurt them again. I am willing to do everything possible to heal this, to manage this, to improve my life. And then they say this thing, which used to get me every time. Now I see it as a big warning flag, but they'd say, and you know what, Dr. Sean, even if they leave me and they don't come back to be with me, I will still do this recovery work. I will still do this because I need to do it for myself. I need to break this pattern. And I'm thinking right on, like that is exactly what we want to hear. And they show all this insight. They attend all their sessions. They're highly motivated and their spouse is not with them. And some will do this for a year, two years. And then all of a sudden, the spouse says, okay, I'll move back in with you. And the second they move in, boom, game over. They drop out of therapy and the abuse starts up. Or the spouse says, you know, I just, 
I'm not going to join you in this journey. And then the second they say, I'm breaking up with you, this is real, this is permanent. Then the person, boom, they're out of therapy. All that stuff that they promised me that they would do and how they would continue to work and what they would continue to learn didn't come through. So again, the words are empty. You have to go with the behavior. When I talk about safe people, I often point this out that if people have to tell you who they are, like I'm such a good friend, I'm so loyal, I'm so, I have these ethics, I have these values, be cautious because people who actually have those values, they just live them. They don't try to convince you or themselves that they are a person of value. If someone is loyal, they're just loyal. They don't have to convince you that they're loyal to themselves or others. So when someone is drawing a verbal picture for you of who they are without letting you just discover that on your own, then it can be artificial. It can be insincere. And that person may not even know it. They may be doing it even for themselves. This is how I want to think about myself. This is what I want to believe about myself. But I really struggle fulfilling this. And so they have that inner conflict inside. So this person says, he hates himself so much with such a passion. Okay, so the other point that came to mind to me is that a lot of times predators find empathic, compassionate people, people who are like marshmallow parents, you know, they just want to love their kids. They just want to make people feel like they belong, that they're valued, they're welcome, they're wanted. It's so important to them. And they will just care for you. They will be loyal and sometimes toxically loyal where you're loyal, where loyalty is not appropriate. They will tolerate intolerable things because they're seeing that little child inside that person. And that's what pulls their heartstrings. The way a predator will engage somebody with that, they will tell them their pain story. They'll tell them their abuse story, their their vulnerability, how much they hate themselves. And people who are really empathic will lean in and just have so much compassion for that and be like, oh my gosh, that's so horrible. I will never do that to you. I will make sure you always know you're loved. And here, my friends, you have taken the bait. I'm sorry to say. And I know this from experience because I'm that person. You get by the actual behaviors that they're engaging in because you now have maternally connected with that inner child. You have now joined with their pain story and you have committed to being that loving parent for them. And if they see that in you, if they see that you lean in to do for them what they can do for themselves, that you will step in and try to be the answer, the solution to their pain, then they know that you're game. They can play with you. They can manipulate you. They can control you because abusers know if I can control your feelings, I can control you. They will test the waters by seeing if they can control your feelings in a positive way. And typically they do it with a pain story. And normally that pain story comes at a time where you're disappointed or upset about something. So you're talking about how hard the relationship is or they were late or they they ghosted you or something. And, and then they're like, oh, I just hate myself for doing this. And I've always hated myself. And, I'm, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, no. <laughs> like, I'm not saying that. I'm just frustrated that you didn't call me or now instead of them attending to you, it's been flipped. And now you're taking care of their feelings. You're taking care of their circumstance. And this is a decoy. Let's continue on with this question. The person says, I feel like the right thing keeps changing. Staying with him to help him. Okay, let's stop right there. It is not your job to do their recovery. They're an adult. 
They need to go to helpers, to official people that will help them. You are not in a position to do that. You're in a position to be in an interdependent relationship that is reciprocal, that is safe, that is supportive and kind and loving, but safe. And when I say reciprocal, it needs to be both going both ways. Now, sometimes our partners can be down and have a tough time and we might carry the load for a little while to help them get through a tough time, through a struggle. But that normally comes after you've really established a relationship and it's trustworthy, it's safe, it's healthy. That's just what we do for our partners. This is a red flag to me that this person is saying that they want to stay with them, not for the overall picture, not not for the healthy reasons necessarily, but to help that person. So rule of thumb, don't do another person's recovery. It's not your job. And you can't even do it because it's an inside job. Like they have to do it. They have to dig deep and go in and do their inner work. You can't do it. You can't manage their thoughts, their triggers, their body. Can't do it. We got to let them do it. So she continues or to leave him because it's emotionally abusive. Okay. If it's emotionally abusive, then we need to take steps to not stay in the ring. What so many people do is they stay in the ring. The person punches them as a figure of speech. And the person's like, whoa, you're a puncher. Like you need to know you're a puncher. And then the person hits them again. And they go, wait a second, you can't do that. You're hurting me. Let me explain to you how that's hurting me. And then they punch you again. And you say, oh my goodness, you have unresolved issues. You need to know about that because that's making you be a puncher. And they hit you again. Girlfriend, get out of the ring get out of the ring. They are dangerous. They are punchers. They need to learn how to not be in the ring themselves, how to take off the gloves, how to approach life differently. And you can't do that for them. So if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to get safe. Now, if you're married, if you're listening to this and you're married, what I find a lot of times people might be in a situation where they can't leave for various things, especially if they've been married for years and years and years, they have a lot invested They have a lot going on and there's unusual circumstances that I have come across that most people aren't really exposed to that you go, oh gosh, that is complicated. And so I've known people to do different kinds of arrangements where they might not officially get divorced, but they get legally separated. But what I would recommend is that you work with somebody who knows how to treat domestic violence and abuse to help you navigate through that. So you can know what your options are and what are the best options for you. So this person says that they're emotionally abusive and he's not changing. All right. And this is where I go back to if someone tells you who they are, believe them. You know what I mean? If they say, I have an anger problem, believe it. Their behavior is evidence. And so here you have someone that has problems. They're emotionally abusive. They are engaging in problematic behaviors and they're not changing. And then the the author says, but is trying, I think. All right, get out of your head, girlfriend. (laughs) Okay, first of all, it is stinking thinking to presume to know what someone is thinking, what they're feeling, what is motivating them and what their intentions are. Unless you are God, you cannot know those things. So whatever we presume to believe about that person, what we think they're thinking, this is just a theory. It's just a hypothesis. And really it becomes our stories that we tell about the people that we're in relationship with. We really need to guard ourselves from stories. So then she says, stay with him because he needs help. All right. You already know my position on that. She says his childhood was horrifying. Doesn't matter. 
That is a contributing a historical piece to the development of his belief system and his behaviors, but it is not a justification for the circumstance and it is not an invitation for you to change it. You cannot. It's complicated. When I have someone come in with horrifying childhood trauma and anger problems, I'm looking at a good solid two years of weekly, if not twice a week therapy. And even with that, we might even need to go longer. If the person is really motivated and they have good insight, we can get really good headway. But if there's somebody who is just wanting people to be in their life to utilize them for what they have to offer, they love being loved by you. They don't love you. They love being loved by you. They don't want you to leave them because they like what you do for them in their lives, how you function, what you take care of. It just comes down to that. So you're not a tool. You're not something to be utilized for their benefit. You are a human being that is worthy of love, worthy of safety, worthy of a reciprocal relationship where both are contributing in a safe, respectful way. That is what we need to create in our lives. She continues, he's saying losing me was the wake up call. All right, red flag, girlfriend. This is what they do. All of a sudden, when you leave, they're motivated for treatment. And if you go to the YWCA and you look up any information they have about domestic violence, they will say that when after an explosion, after an event, they become the ideal partner. They are motivated to be your ideal partner spouse. They are ideal with the kids. They are all of a sudden correcting their behavior. They're just doing everything right. And then you go, oh my gosh, look, they're doing it. They're they're taking the steps. Maybe this means they're changing. And they might even stop whatever the behavior problem is like drinking or drugs, something along those lines. But it's it's temporary. It's there to motivate you to come back into relationship. And once you do, the domestic violence cycle begins once again. And the cycle is the tension builds up and then they explode. And then you have a honeymoon period. Honeymoon period. I'm sorry. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'm willing to do anything you say. And then we'll be back and it's all good. And then the tension starts up again and then the explosion. Domestic violence is not always physical. It can be sexual. It can be emotional. It could be spiritual. There's many different ways that people victimize others. Earlier in this message, she said they've been together for an extended period. So we'll say between five and 10 years. This person hasn't had a wake-up call up to this point that has caused a, a significant effort to change. I mean, it's just too late, really. I like to see people the first time there's an offense and you talk about it, that they say they hear you, they understand it. They don't try to justify or rationalize, but then they might at first, you know, we all get defensive and we don't want to see it even in ourselves. Like that's how shame is. I don't want you to see my shame and I don't want to see my shame. So we'll shame dump to distract ourselves and you from the shame that we have by pointing out the shame in you that you're doing it wrong. You're the reason for their behavior. You're the reasons for their feelings. No, sir. You are not responsible for other people's feelings. You are not responsible for other people's behavior. You can affect it but you're not responsible for it. Think of a court. If you go into a court and the judge is there and the judge is looking at someone and they say, judge, I did this because they made me do this. No, sir. (laughs) 
And every person in jail, that's their mindset. When we worked in prisons, we would have these groups just to teach them to take personal responsibility. It doesn't matter what the other person did or said. We have to take personal responsibility for how we showed up, for what we did, the choices we made. Now, disclaimer, there are some things that can alter us. And that is like if somebody's having a full-blown manic episode and they're not being treated with medication. The other situation is when we have been groomed in an abusive relationship and we've participated in the abuse because of the grooming. So it's kind of like being brainwashed. You have to learn about how that brainwashing contributed to that behavior. So we have to kind of decode that for people so that they aren't taking responsibility for the other person's part. Uh, And that's where it gets a little tricky. So of course, there's nothing that's ever truly black and white. It's complex. So she goes on. His childhood was horrifying. He just needs help. Yes, he does. But you're not his helper. He's saying losing me was a wake up call. Mm, Red flag. And do pathological liars really change? Well, I'm going to go on a limb and I'm going to say no. The only time that they will change line is if they're abiding by the rules of those structures. But pathological liars really struggle with impulse control over line. Any of you listeners have different information on that. If there's different research that I am not familiar with, if I have not been exposed to information, which is possible, please send me a message and let me know. And I will speak to that in a future episode. But this is an impulse control problem, pathological liars. Okay, let's first say there's a difference between pathological lying and being antisocial antisocial and a sociopath. So there is pathological lying and that often can be due to neurological things. Like it can be, there's a thing called confabulation disorder and we call it white lie syndrome where people embellish stories, they exaggerate them, they fill in the blanks and people will listen to it and say, you are lying. And they go, no. And they will adamantly fight for that truth because they believe it. They believe what they are saying is true and fact and everybody else does not remember right. They have the best memory around. They remember things like an elephant and they think that nobody else remembers right because everyone else's truth and reality is different than theirs. And so they go, well, clearly you don't remember right. Well, this is a neurological condition that is caused by head trauma. It can be caused by any sort of like head injuries. I know someone like this in my life and so often or most of my life, I thought this person was lying and I was so angry with because they embellished and told stories and changed the reality and I was just furious about it. But when I learned about confabulation, I was like, oh my gosh, I understand this now. I got so much compassion for that individual. I reframed the way I looked at it. Instead of looking at it as their lying, I looked at it as they just have this difficulty. So I take what they say with a grain of salt. That's different than being a pathological liar. We'll use that term they're referring to sociopaths or con artists or something. And those folks, they'll just do whatever they need to do to attain their goal. And that's just the way it is. They don't have the proper thing inside them that's saying, don't do that. That's not okay. It's more that is advantageous or that's not. I will get what I want here or I won't. 
And so we must be cautious with that. If it's lying because of ADHD or impulse control, or they're just trying to avoid getting in trouble, like you see with children, then we want to look at it as a symptom of the impulse control difficulties and teach them other ways. But we really want to get that motivation connect for. So again, you can see how these questions are so hard to give a straight answer to. When I listen to those shows, like Dr. Laura, Dr. Phil, they're like, they're a pathological liar. Is they're going to change? No, they won't change. I'm just going to tell you that right now, he says, right? (laughs) And I'm sitting there going, well, wait a second. Are they using the term right? Is it pathological liar? Is it compulsive lying related to ADHD? Is it a parent-child relational problem? Is it a sociopath? Is it confabulation? What are we talking about here? It's just so much more information that we need to have. What we know is lying is on board. And if lying is on board, then you cannot take a person by their words. You must take them by what they do. And if you choose to stay in a relationship with someone who is going through the proper motions, they're getting treatment, they're saying the right things, and you want to stay in there because you love them, you have a lot of things hanging on that situation, then you need to approach it strictly from what I'm willing to tolerate, what I'm not willing to tolerate, and stick to your boundaries. That in the event and when it happens, when they have a relapse, when they lie again, you know exactly how you're going to manage it. It is like behavioral planning that you do in parenting. The best source to help really ground you with that that I cannot speak highly enough is adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. That curriculum, that course, that program will help you to stay grounded, to give you the structure for your mental boundaries, your cognitive boundaries, so you will know what to do in that situation. So you have to look at behaviors, not emotions. With children, if it feels good, it feels good. If it feels bad, it feels bad. You have to get to their level and just have clear behavioral structures in place. And that's what you have to do with people who you can't trust what they say they're going to do, or they're not responding to your emotional pleas. Instead of pleading with them, you're saying, for lack of better words, a victim in this situation of your choice. And can't you see how that's affecting me? We're in that dialogue, you're setting it up for them not only to be the offender, but to be your hero. In that case, they have all the power. So instead, we have to reclaim our power and say, okay, given this situation, what do I need to ask for? What do I need to say no to? And then I need to follow through with what works for me and what doesn't work for me. If you go at it with, I'm going to set these boundaries to influence your behavior, that's toxic boundaries. Don't do that because you're trying to do their part and you can't do their part. Instead, you have to look within you and really be clear about what works for you and what doesn't and abide by that those rules of the game. You have to have the playground rules. And so we need to know what those are. So the writer goes on to say, we talk a lot about stuff and always have, which is why I can't tell if he's being honest with me or trying to trick me with things he's saying now. The red flag that comes up with this is that when you've shared really intimate conversations with a con artist, with a predator, they now know what are your triggers. They know what are your soft points, your soft spots, and they can engage those with you. This is really at the core of emotional manipulation, that emotional manipulators will lead to the very thing you value. So if I'm parenting my child and I value that child knowing that they are loved no matter what, Then when I go in my kid's room and I say, I'm upset. And I say, you need to do your homework. You haven't done it. They go, 
I don't feel loved by you. And you're like, what? And then they start crying and they say, you never love me. All you care about is whether I do homework or not. You never spend time with me. And you're going, oh my gosh, that's horrible. No, honey, no. And okay, blindsided. Hello. If you're a Christian and you confront them and say, you're being abusive to me and I can't tolerate that. And they say, you know, I was finally starting to believe in God, but now, now that you're abandoning me, you're rejecting me, uh, there's no God. And then you're like, Oh my gosh, like that's horrible. How can they say that? No, no, no. God loves you. Jesus loves you. Well, then if you, if you're really a Christian, why would you leave me? And like, well, I'm not leaving you. I'm just, it's just because you can't do that. And well, you told me you'd always love me. And I believe you had the love of Christ. And well, I do. And I do love you. Then why would you leave me? Well, I'm not, but you're, do you see how that works? Like, did you get stressed out just hearing that? I'm so sorry. <laughs> we'll take a moment and we'll bring it down. Oh gosh, but this is the reality. And this is how our thoughts get spun up and we get confused and we don't know what we're asking for. And we, and we have compassion. We see what they're saying. And okay, we are lost in the tornado and off to the land of Oz we go. So coming back to reality, we need to ground ourselves in our truth. We need to ground ourselves in the rules of the playground. You can't be unsafe. If you're unsafe, you can't be with me, period even though you love the positive side of them, you love the good parts, you love that inner child in them so much, you see their pain and you have compassion for it and empathy for it. They have taught you through their behavior that they are not safe to have in your life and you cannot heal them or treat them because it's bigger than you and it's an inside job. Finally, the writer says, how much can someone change if they go to therapy and get rid of toxic shame? Well, the first myth about healing from toxic shame is that you get rid of toxic shame. <laughs> we can't get rid of anything that has been in our history, like a, a memory, a feeling, a behavior. It will remain in the conveyor belt of our life on our timeline. If it's under the right circumstances, if the right triggers, the right activators, circumstances, memories come on board, it will bring it like a suitcase on that conveyor belt to you. And we need to use our new skills. And this is what we do in therapy. We're not taking that suitcase off the conveyor belt. What we're doing is we're changing the way we react to the suitcase. Instead of taking it off the conveyor belt and going through it and just sitting in that suitcase, we don't want to do that. We don't want to ruminate. We also don't want to resist it. Why is it here? Shoulda, woulda, coulda, have to. I hate. As you're resisting it, you are suffering because it keeps looping around and you keep getting exasperated and taking it personal that is on your conveyor belt. So we're not getting rid of the storms. We're not getting rid of the memories. We're not getting rid of the pain. What we're doing, we are moving away from controlling it to observing it and attending to it. And if you want to learn more about how to do that, how to observe it, how to attend to it, then please, 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 please sign up on my website, sign up on Instagram. I have a link saying, yes, I want to stay connected to Dr. Sean. And you will get courses that are coming out this new year in my newly branded school called Inspired Living School. And in that, I'm going to teach about the conveyor belt. I'm going to teach about resistance. I'm going to teach about how to surf the storms so that they don't destroy you. You can learn to ride the wave and do it well, do it masterfully. And there are skills to help with that. Like the one I just talked about, about not resisting and not clinging. That's a component of my mindfulness training that I teach. So let's say this person learns about toxic shame, 
They put it in its perspective and they learn strategies and skills to surf the wave of shame differently. So they're not shame dumping on other people, but they have tools that they can use to help de-escalate their emotions, to down-regulate their emotions, to read their biofeedback they're getting from their body. And that is in trauma-informed therapies. If you are struggling with shame, I recommend providers and therapists who are trauma-informed because there's a lot of neurological things going on here that goes beyond the person's intention. It is activators, it's triggers, and we have to really help that person learn how to downregulate their nervous system. That's going to be really important. And again, I have a course that I've already developed. So it's not, I'm going to develop it. Like I've already developed it and I'm really excited. So it's coming folks. It's here and I'm excited about that. You can learn that information information in the course and take it to your therapist and use it in conjunction with your individual therapy so you can apply it to your situation. So if they learn how to surf their shame and do that more effectively, that doesn't mean they will change. It doesn't mean that they will stop lying. It doesn't mean that they will be safe. It just means that they understand the impact of shame on their life. And they've learned coping skills and tools that are available for them to use when they're activated and triggered, but it does not guarantee they will use them. They may just choose not to be compliant. And that is a struggle that many people have. And that's something we address in therapy to really get people motivated on board to make those changes and to engage them. So to conclude, this person says... And I know I sound like every other hopeful girl out there, honestly, truly see good in him. Well, okay, that's fine. But that doesn't change the hard parts of him. It's not black and white. He has goodness in him and he has problematic behaviors in him. And he might have neurodiversity in him that makes his brain not responsive to the typical social rules that we buy by that may interfere with his ability to be empathic and may contribute to him being unsafe. She continues, he's literally been rejected. All right, not your problem though. Abused. Okay, but not your problem. What I mean by that, you can care about that, but it does not assign responsibility to you to fix it. And in so much mental pain, his whole life. And yes, I have compassion for that too. And I understand. And I don't want to see that happen to anyone. And I completely understand how that pulls your heartstrings. I really do. But girlfriend, it's not your job. It's too big for you. You need a support system that is going to help you get your strength back, to help you stay grounded, to help you stay rooted in your truth and not to waver when you get all of the words put in your direction that spins your mind, spins your feelings and gets you engaged once again. She says, no one starts out needing to lie about everything, right? The bottom line is he's lying about a lot. What I think is really the therapeutic question here is what is going on within you? that has motivated you, compelled you to tolerate intolerable things too long? What has been going on that has caused you to be loyal where loyalty is not deserved or earned, to trust where trust is not earned? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Where is this coming from? What's conditioned you to jump in there and rescue someone that gives 
you the sense that you need to rescue someone. What is that? That is the therapeutic thing that needs to be addressed here. So folks, anytime you find yourself completely absorbed in someone else's recovery, someone else's story, someone else's journey, be on guard because that could be your warning sign that you are engaging in codependent behavior. We have to have healthy boundaries in our mind and in our life. And sometimes when we've been abused ourselves growing up and we've had pain ourselves growing up or we've witnessed it or we have tolerated intolerable things or we've been programmed to numb out to our own biofeedback, to not pay attention to our needs, to not let it be okay that you need these things, to condition you to believe that it's your fault when people behave a certain way and it's your problem to fix. These toxic messages that we get, this conditioning that we get is what contributes to us maintaining relationships like this and being drawn to them and nurturing them and yes, maintaining them. And that pattern needs to stop. There are safe people out there. There are people that want to be in a reciprocal relationship. And I just strongly encourage you to seek help with somebody who understands that. And to back up when the writer said they're in treatment, not all treatments the same too. This person would need skills training like DBT treatment and trauma-informed treatment. Based on how this person was described, I would highly recommend those two methods and mostly combined really because they need coping skills, they need treatment tools that they can get from methods like DBT. Go to the YWCA, learn about the domestic violence wheel, get your support. I like the exercise of having yourself write a letter from your strong self to your vulnerable self, to your weak self. If you're in a relationship that you are needing to step out of and all the evidence is there, you know it is wise and best and you have to do that, but you know you get vulnerable when they start to plead with you in things and they make your mind spin and you lose yourself, you lose your grounding. Have a letter from your strong self that will speak to you at those times that will say, girlfriend, I know you have a big heart, I know you care. I know you love this person. I know that you just have so much compassion, but it is not your job. You are in an abusive relationship. This person has demonstrated over and over that their behavior is unsafe. Their words are unsafe. And it just is. Based on this behavior, I am clear now that this is not mine, that this truth is mine, and do not engage in this conversation with him. Step back, come home, ground yourself, call person one, person two, person three, whoever you establish to be your grounders, your port system to keep you in reality, like a reality check. So know who those people are. And they should be people that aren't telling you what to do, but are there to affirm your decision and to speak wisdom to you and to remind you of who you are, to remind you of your wise choices, that what you've committed to, that that's their job. You don't need more people in your life that are tell you you're thinking wrong. <laughs> so let that be up to the mental health providers and the domestic violence folks that can really help you recognize healthy and unhealthy thought patterns so that you can have an approach to your thinking and to your life that is going to be more effective. And finally, know this, when you set your intention to have healthy, respectful relationships, when you say no to abuse, when you start to take care of yourself, 
You start to stand up for yourself. You start to empower yourself. You start to protect yourself and you start moving towards abundance. You start moving towards love. You say, I now choose love. I now welcome someone loving me as I love them. Trust that the universe will conspire to assist you. You will start to find people who will genuinely value you when you start to genuinely value yourself. I encourage you to set the intention to create new patterns that are loving, respectful, wise, and best. And on a side note, what I want to add here is it doesn't make you a better person to tolerate intolerable things. It doesn't make you more loving, more loyal, more virtuous. It makes you an enabler. And we don't want to enable other people. A loving parent says no. A loving parent protects the child from their unhealthy choices by putting structures in place. And if we have someone who is violating those structures, if we allow them to violate it, we are taking care of our need to make them feel loved over the requirement and the need of what is best for them to not keep getting away with the problematic behavior without consequences. It does not benefit them. It does not benefit you. It does not make you a better person. We need clarity on that. So I wish you the best. I wish you the best of journey. And thank you so much for this question. I loved it. I loved answering this. I hope this was helpful for you. And again, folks, please send in your questions. I will be happy to answer them from a therapeutic perspective of what we what I see in that question and what comes up for me. And remember, it's for educational purposes. It's to help inform you, but I do not possibly have all the information to speak directly to you in an informed way. So take this information and then go to a professional that you can sit down with who can help you get clarity as it applies to your story and your journey. So send me your questions and let me know if there's anything else you want me to address and we'll go from there. Thank you for joining us today. I hope this discussion was inspiring and uplifting to your journey. Please remember this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not meant to substitute a relationship with a licensed mental health professional. Also, make sure you rate this show, share with those you know, and send us a shout out. Please message me with any topics you would like me to address or questions you have on social media at Dr. Sean Horn or on my website. Thank you again and may you find joy in the journey and be richly blessed.